We are in a section of Ephesians where Paul is talking to the church about relationships of submission. This is all under the, the category of submit to one another in love out of reverence for Christ. And so he's talking about relationships of submission. We talked last week about the submission within marriage between husbands and wives. We talked this week about relationships between parents and children and between servants or slaves and masters. This section of Ephesians can seem distant at best to us. Uh, it can seem like it's describing a different world and can seem irrelevant at best, offensive, if we're honest, at worst. What's Paul doing in this world of hierarchical relationships, talking to servants and masters in this way? So it can seem very, very different, uh, distant for us. But I want to propose to us that it's very, very practical that it touches areas of our lives and of our world that each one of us go through every day and that is a very present lived reality. I want to walk you through just four hypothetical scenarios uh, that might seem unrelated at first, but that I want to suggest this passage has real hope for. Imagine you're just starting out in your career. You're well-educated and gifted, good education, you understand your chosen industry and you feel yourself certain to advance. And yet your company doesn't seem to appreciate you. Your boss never notices you. Your compensation is not what you feel that you deserve and you don't have the vacation time that you want. Meanwhile, you have a friend who works for a tech startup in the Silicon Valley, has six weeks of vacation, plays ping pong with his boss three times a day in the office, and he just seems to have it so much better. On the other hand, your boss seems to have gotten where he is solely by lasting a long time, He's overpaid and underqualified. He takes you for granted, doesn't thank you enough or recognize your prodigious gifts. So you spend your lunch break searching for other jobs. You're aware that you promised the company a minimum of three years, and it's only been six months, but still, you've earned it. Or maybe this, you're a parent. You desire to raise your children to be loving, responsible adults. You know that you've been given the responsibility of giving them both love and discipline, and yet when your instructions are not heard or your discipline's not effective and your children speak disrespectfully to you, you sometimes lose control of your anger. The line between discipline and anger get blurred and you yell, you discipline and rage, and then afterwards you feel like an utter failure as a mom or a dad. Did a lot of research on these. How about this one? Recognizing your life to be out of control. You check yourself into a residential drug and alcohol treatment recovery program. The staff and the counselors have lots of rules, but they seem nice and well-meaning enough. They must know what they're talking about. They've been doing it for a while. And besides, you weren't doing so great on your own. At first, compliance to their guidance comes relatively easy. But as the months add up and you move through the program, the rules begin to feel constricting. You find yourself disagreeing with the advice and grumbling to other students, hypothetically. It's innocent enough at first, but before long, you find yourself contemplating leaving the program altogether and going out on your own. How about one more? After another controversial element of police violence in a mid-sized American city not unlike our own, news outlets, social media, and newspapers are again revisiting the now well-worn national conversations about race, privilege, and power in our country. As a white person, you've never felt particularly privileged uh, your parents worked hard for the upbringing they gave you. You worked hard in school and in your career. It quite honestly feels insulting and a bit threatening to be associated with privilege. And yet, 
as you listen to the voices of black parents, uh, whether in interviews or your friends, you can't help but admit that the fears that they carry for their children, their experience as parents uh, is a world removed from yours, that there is something uh, to it. So these issues, both on the, the largest scale of our national history and identity, and on the smallest scale of how you just manage to feel how to parent without giving in to rage, or how to submit in your work, all of these come down to the same core issue. How do we love? How do we relate well in relationships in which there is a difference in power, in which there is a disparity, an imbalance in the amount of power between two people? You know, it's interesting. We're, to, to situate us again in the book of Ephesians, remember Paul's message that God is renewing the whole world and that he's uniting all things together in Christ, that he's building a reconciled and renewed people in the church, no longer divided by race or class or uh, their background culturally. He's bringing them together in Christ into one new humanity. He calls them into union, into unity with one another in love, submission to one another in love. And so the very next thing he does is takes on the relationships where unity is the most difficult. Right? He doesn't talk, there's no section here where he's talking about peer relationships, as difficult as friendship can be. He's not talking about relationships between co-workers, brothers and sisters. He's talking about relationships where there's a power differential. Because in those relationships, unity, love, submission, is incredibly difficult. It's incredibly difficult to know how we love, how we submit in the midst of relationships where power is unequal. Andy Crouch, Christian theologian and ethical writer, defines power as our capacity for meaningful action in the world. That power is our capacity as human beings to make something out of the world that he's given us, to take control of our own lives, to take ownership of of our neighborhoods and our jobs and our vocations. It's our capacity for action in the world. And in such, it's a part of what it means to be a human being. We're made in the image of God. Adam and Eve were made to share in God's power and his authority. Remember in the very first pages of Genesis, they're told to name the animals. God made them and now they're to, to name them. They're called to exercise dominion. They're called to help this earth that God created to flourish under their care. So to have power, to have capacity for action in the world is a part of what it means to be human. And yet, not everybody has the same amount of agency in our world, right? Not everybody gets to be president, right? There can only be one at a time. So for each one of us, there's limits on our power. Even the president in our system, there's, there's limits on his power through other branches of government. So all of us are under someone's authority, most of us are under multiple people's authority in multiple different places of life. Sometimes power differential is short-lived, right? Parents, you have a greater capacity for meaningful action than children do. Children, you're growing, but you're at a place where your capacity to influence the world around you is more limited. Right? Until you're 16, your sphere of influence is limited by how far you can get on your bike or how, where you can convince mom and dad to take you. So your capacity for action is limited. The scriptures tell us that structures of power are inevitable in some ways in human existence. 
but that you can have more or less just arrangements of power. The Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, is very concerned with those in society that have the least power. The whole of the Old Testament law is arranged specifically to take care of those with the least amount of power in an ancient culture. The foreigner, those who find themselves cut off from their people and living as strangers in the land. Widows, orphans, those without means and resources, God's law is very clear to provide for them. The prophets thunder against rulers who lead unjustly, for the rich who persecute the poor, for the, the rulers of society that don't give voice and don't seek the flourishing of those under their care. So a society could be more or less just. And the scriptures argue for a just ordering of society. And that's what makes a passage like this one so difficult, honestly, is that we come to this and you can look at it and go, well, isn't Paul, isn't the, don't the scriptures seem here on their face to be supporting slavery? He's giving instruction to servants and masters. The, the word, the Greek word there, doulos, means slave. Most of our translations, the one we read, has softened it a bit to go to bond service. And that's... I think that's wise because Roman slavery uh, was very different. And we'll talk about that than the human kidnapping race-based slavery that we knew in our, our own nation's history. So there is a difference, and so they translate it bond servants. But is Paul merely keeping the status quo in his culture? And we want to say no. That Paul, whenever we come to any passage of Scripture, we have to read it in the whole of Scripture. Right? So we've seen that we have the whole voice of the law and the prophets saying that every human being has dignity and worth, that we should seek a just ordering of our society. Right? We see that. In fact, the Christian scriptures lay the, the axe at the root of slavery that would one day come to flourish through the abolition movement. It was Christians who, applying the scripture to their world, began to work towards abolition. So what Paul's doing here is writing not as a big-picture ethicist, right? He's not writing about the just ordering of societies, trusting that those blocks are in place in the Scriptures. What he's writing to do is to help men and women live life as they receive it, live the life that they find themselves in, a life in which he's going to call, as we looked at last week, both husbands and wives, this week, both children and parents, masters and servants, to lives of submission and love. Paul gives great dignity uh, to both in our passage today, both of the people who find themselves on the lower end of the power equation, servants and children. He treats them as those who, even though they lack power in their lives, can still glorify God, imitate Christ, and lay down their lives in self-giving love. And so what we want to look at this morning out of this passage is just three, really two, things about authority. The first is that all authority comes from God. It belongs to God, and it flows back to God. And then secondly, whether you are in authority or under authority, that you're called to the very same thing, which is submission and love, laying down your life for the flourishing of others. First, all authority belongs to God. How do we know this? Well, Jesus' last words before he left earth, as he's gathered his disciples before and before his ascension, he tells them, all authority 
in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority, not just some of it, not just religious authority, not just authority over the church, but all authority in heaven and on earth. Authority over men and women, authority over cultures, authority over governments, authority over all things has been given to Jesus through his death and his resurrection victorious over the grave. He has won for himself and been given by his Father all authority in heaven and earth. Now, as God did with Adam and Eve in the garden, he continues to delegate authority. He continues to entrust men and women with authority, with the capacity for, as we said, meaningful engagement with the world around them. He gives us authority. But all of us, with every bit of authority we've been given, we're all accountable before God because all authority belongs to him. Any authority that we've been given, whether it's over little things, your task at work, the ordering of your home, a company if you lead one, authority within the church if you're in leadership of the church. All of that authority is a stewardship. It's given to you for a season, and then one day you'll be accountable before God for what you did with it. Imagine what it would have felt like. Remember, we said that the setting of this letter coming to the church would have been the whole church gathered together, husbands and wives, children and adults, slaves and masters, all together probably in a home, And they would have read this letter from Paul. And so they were all receiving this together. Imagine servants and their masters sitting next to each other in the pew. Hearing this in verse 9. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And there is no partiality with him. So whether you're wealthy or poor, if you find yourself in a position of power or in a position of service, Ultimately, that's eternally, that, that station of life is going to last for the blink of an eye. And then you both end up in the same place, accountable before the God of heaven and earth. All of a sudden, the gap between you looks just absolutely minuscule. And you realize, oh man, the gap between us was this, but the gap between either one of us and God in terms of power and authority and majesty and accountability is, is vast. And we're both accountable to the same master. This means that you and your boss are both accountable morally before the same God. This was radical uh, in, in Paul's world. It's been radical in the, the ancient world in general. That human beings, rich or poor, with power or without, are accountable before God. It's something that, honestly, we've, we've largely lost culturally. This is one of the things that the move towards, sec- towards a secular society that we started pursuing with the Enlightenment, one of the things that we lost without realizing we were giving it up was the idea that human rulers are accountable before God. Our 17th and 18th century, as is, is, is Europe in general and the West, sought to shake off the authority of the church, the authority of God, and to live, live a free life apart from that. Thinking that they would find freedom, what did we end up finding? Was that unchecked by divine accountability, human rulers become tyrants. Right? Without the church as the conscience of the state, without God as the one who would hold kings and presidents accountable, 
You get things like unchecked European conquest and expansion in, in Africa and Latin America. You get leaders like Hitler and Mussolini and Stalin. Leaders who believe themselves not accountable to God, but gods themselves, able to exercise their power however they saw fit. Right? It takes divine power, divine accountability to keep human beings, human beings who've been entrusted with power, humble and accountable and aware of the fact that we are called to live in submission. So recognizing God's authority as the only way to keep human beings and human authority in check, because all authority comes from God. And so if you find yourself as one who's under authority, if it's in one of those relationships where you have less power, less authority than those that you're in relationship with, you are called, Paul tells us, to love and submission that you are called to love and submit, even to those who have more power and authority in this life than you do. And this is hard for us. Every, every one of us wants to be in control. Right? Every one of us would, would rather be in charge than not be in charge. Uh, we learn in the home what it's like to not be in charge. I think that's one of the reasons Paul starts with that before he gets to these other circles. I can still remember... And every, I, all of us have been children at one point. I'm sure you can still remember it driving you nuts when your parents would tell you to do something and when you said, but why? And they would say, because I'm the dad and that's why. Because I'm, the, I'm your parent and that's why. And what would you always say as a kid? That's not fair, <laughs> right? It's not, why do you get to pick? Why do you get to pick the rules of the house or what we eat for dinner or any of that stuff? Right, I want, I want to have it my way. Right? We all want to be in control. We all, to, we all want to be in charge. And yet God's given us the home, the family, for us to learn to be submitted to loving and benevolent authority. For us to learn what it means to be in relationship with someone who has more authority than we do, but who's for us, who's after our own well-being and our own flourishing. Children, you know, you are addressed directly in this letter. And that's, you know, that's something unusual. We said last, last week that the Roman philosophers that wrote household codes only addressed the husband, the, the father, the boss. He never addressed the, the children. And yet Paul treats the children of the church as members of the church. He treats the children of the church as those who are, yes, smaller, yes, still learning and growing into their identity and who they'll be, but he addresses them directly as those who have the ability to, to follow Jesus, as those who have the ability to obey Jesus, as those who have the ability to learn and to grow more and more what it means to be Christians. And kids, I want you to know that that's how we feel about you, that we view you as our brothers and sisters as well as our sons and daughters. We view you as fellow people in need of a Savior, Yes, you're growing. Yes, you're going to grow into bigger and deeper responsibilities and roles within our church. But you're a part of us. We value you, and so we, we want to speak to you. The instruction that kids are given here, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Kids, what God is saying here, is that as you submit, as you, as you obey your parents, that it's actually for your good. That as you live your life in their home, under their instruction, under their care, that it's for your flourishing. 
that it's directly related to your putting down roots and growing into a mature teenager, young adult, man or woman, that parental care, parental leadership, parental authority is for your good. And I'm aware that there is every reason for you not to believe this. There's so many voices in our world, so many voices in our culture that tell you that freedom in life is to be found in rebellion from your parents, right? That parents just don't understand. Was the, that's, that dates me a little bit. Um, but yeah, your parents just don't understand what you're going through. They don't understand what it's like to be a kid. They'll never know. But they do. They were. And they're here because they love you. And obedience, your obedience to God runs in some ways through your parents, well, what if, what if my parents seem foolish? What if I don't agree with them? What if I disagree with how they'd have me live my life? Well, that can happen. Sometimes parents aren't fair. But God calls you to submit to him through submitting to your parents, through believing that they have the best in, in, intentions for you, that you can flourish. You know, the model for this in the scriptures, the book of Proverbs, lays out, uh, the whole book of Proverbs is essentially about a parent teaching his children to grow from foolishness to wisdom. And that's, I think, what growing is about, what growing from a child into a teenager and into an adult is about. It's growing from foolishness, which a fool believes my way is the best way. I don't need instruction. I know what's, I know what's best. My way is the best way. To wisdom, which says God's way is the best way. I've got a lot to learn. I can, I can grow and I can learn to live with the grain of God's world and his word. And so growing up is about growing from foolishness. Being a child, is you're, you're foolish in some ways. All of us are. All of us think our way is the best way. But your parents are given to you not to teach you that their way is the best way, but to help you together to grow towards wisdom, towards acknowledging that God's way is the best way. And so you're called uh, to, lead, uh, to submit, to obey, to live under their, their guidance. And if that seems hard... Don't worry, we've got harder words for your parents coming up in just a little bit. The other context that Paul gives us where we're under authority is the, the relationship between servant and master, slave and master. And we've said a little bit already that this was very different than the slavery that we knew in our own country, that slavery in the Roman world uh, was a part of the fabric of the society. It wasn't good, but it was different than what we knew in our, in our country. One commentator says that at the time of Paul's writing, there were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. Slavery wasn't based on race. It wasn't based on kidnapping. It was, uh, you could either become a slave. Some were there because they lost in war. They were kind of a prisoner of war. Uh, many entered into, into servanthood voluntarily. They would, uh, either because they found themselves in debt and needed to work off their debt, or because they wanted to get ahead in their career. We know evidentially that there were professionals in the slave in, that were servants, those who were doctors and architects, lawyers, sometimes would be bonded servants to a master. One commentator uh, says you can think of it like somebody who goes off to New York City right, out, right after college to work for a bank, and they know that they're going to work 120 hours a week for several years. They're going to work too late. They're going to get in too early. They're going to have to burn the midnight oil and sacrifice several years so that when they get out, they'll have a built-up resume and be able to get, get ahead in their career. And so it's, they tell us that many people entered into a bonded relationship with a master for that reason. 
that they'd work as an architect for one of the leading nobles in the city so that when they were able to get manumission, to get, to get their freedom from their bondage, they would be viewed as a very, very prestigious architect or lawyer or whatever it would be. And so it wasn't a good thing in society, but it was very much a part of the economic relationships of the Roman culture. We know that Paul, in writing to Philemon, does urge him, treating his fellow slave as a brother in Christ to grant him his freedom. So we know that Paul isn't universally baptizing this relationship, but he is giving response to, and responsibility to both sides of it. But historically, Christians, uh, recognizing the change in these relationships, have taken this instruction and applied it to employees and their employers. That this is, is roughly analogous to the relationship between boss and worker. Um, and so we read, and we can find great application for the relationships that we have to those who are in authority over us at work. Look at what he says. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling and with a sincere heart as you would Christ. So even if you don't like your boss, you're working through your boss for Christ. Christ is your ultimate master. He's the one, again, who you're ultimately accountable for. So you're working for your boss as though you're working for Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ. This is, this is fascinating. Uh, this phrase, eye service, we, we think Paul made up. We don't have it anywhere else in the Greek language before it or after it. It's a compound word, eye service. He explains it as man-pleasing. Here's, here's my attempt at explaining it. Things are slow at work, so your mind starts to wander, and you get on Facebook. You start checking in on sports scores on ESPN.com. You start looking at what your friends are up to on Instagram. And then all of a sudden, there's a knock at your door, and you hear your boss's voice. What do you do? You immediately scramble, and you click up some spreadsheet. Anyone will do. Get off of Facebook, right? So it looks like you're working hard, right? So it looks like you're doing what you were supposed to be doing. That's eye service. That's working not out of integrity, not out of trying to take the best use of the time and do the best job you can possibly do, but working so it looks like you're making the best use of the time and doing the best work you can possibly do. And Paul says, don't do it. Don't do it because you ultimately don't work for your boss. You work for Jesus. Jesus is the one who gave you your calling, whether your calling is in healthcare or in the military or in teaching or, or, or whatever it is that God's called you to do. He's called you to that task, not just so that you can kill the hours between 8 and 6 or so that you can make enough money or any of those things. He calls you to it because it's good work that needs doing. He calls you to it because it's some, it represents some piece of what he's made you to do. And so you to, to do it with integrity, to do it in such a way that you're not just trying to do the bare minimum to get by or to kill yourself to get ahead, but doing good work with integrity because it's part of what you're, you're made to do, is to work not as, eye ple not, as, not as eye service or man pleasers, but to work as though you're working for God, not just trying to work for appearances. So that's his call for those who live under authority. But what about when you find yourself in authority? What about those relationships that we find ourselves in where we are the ones with power? We're the, we're the ones with some authority. Well, he addresses uh, those both in the home and in the workplace. He tells those who have power, those who have authority, uh, that again, they are submitted to God, that we're accountable for the authority 
that he gives us, that ultimately we have to give an answer to it. And that even when we're in authority, it's not about ourselves. Authority biblically is always what Paul says here. It's authority in submission. It's authority not for our own flourishing, but for the flourishing of those that we care for. This means that parents, your your leadership in your home isn't a chance to use your children for your own ambitions, right? Not for your ambitions to have a perfectly behaved and well-dressed family. Not for your ambitions that they're going to make it and get ahead in a way that you failed to. It's not about living your life or imposing your will vicariously on your kids. It's about stewarding your kids as disciples of Jesus, discovering who they are, who they're made to be, and what he's calling them to do. In work, if you're a manager of those under you, it's about their flourishing, their advancement, their growth, and their prosperity. I love the instruction that Paul gives uh, to parents, gives to fathers, but, but to parents both. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In Colossians 3, the parallel passage, he adds, don't, don't provoke your children to anger that they might become discouraged, but bring them in, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Well, what does that mean? How do I do both of those things at the same time? Raise my kids in such a way that I'm not making them angry and I'm not discouraging them but I am disciplining them, that I am bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Sometimes when I discipline, they get angry. (laughs) It doesn't necessarily mean that I'm wrong, right? So how do I walk that fine line? Don't provoke them to anger, but do discipline. Do bring them along and encourage them towards obedience. I think what it means is that as parents, we have to pay attention to our children's hearts, not just their behavior, right? The two things that Paul gives you to look at as, a, as, as your gauge as a parent is are you provoking them to anger and are you discouraging them? Those are, those are heart characteristics. Those are internal makeup kind of issues. He doesn't give them, make sure your children obey, make sure they always behave perfectly at the table, make sure they always clean their room perfectly. So he gets beyond the surface, and goes to make sure you're not provoking them to anger or breaking their spirits, disciplining in such a way that it creates discouragement in their young hearts. As parents, you're called to be a student of your children's hearts. You're called to learn and, and to study them and to figure out when they're, when they're discouraged, when they're suffering, when, they're, when they feel unjustly treated, when they feel angry, when they start to feel resentful. Your job as a parent isn't to break your children's behavior, although there are certainly discipline and behavioral elements to parenting. Your job as a parent is to shepherd your children's hearts towards Jesus, towards the knowledge, discipline, and instruction in in Jesus. Now, this is so much more difficult because you can have a kid who's compliant, who's obedient, whose room is always clean and always says yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am, and yet their heart is cold, or their heart is distant, or their heart is broken and discouraged. And never know it, and you think you're doing a great job, and you'd be missing their heart. Or you could have a kid that you're constantly losing sleep over. A kid that just doesn't seem to obey anything without a little bit of a getting his own way in it. But his heart is soft. It's responsive. It's accessible to you. 
You can know him, and it's soft, it's repenting. It, it repents when, he, when he's caught doing wrong. You know, it's, you, could end, you could end up missing the proper diagnosis of what's going on in your child's heart before God and his heart with you if you fixate only on their behavior. So parents, fathers, and mothers, pursue the, the hearts of your children. Connect with them on a relational level. Know them because you've been given care for them as stewards of their hearts. As stewards of their hearts. This means uh, maybe when they're little. You know, I, th- I think one of the things that's true about parenting in the Christian faith is that the gospel is caught more than it's taught. Right? Your, your kids are going to pick up more on, on what they see in your relationship with Christ and your need of a Savior than they're going to get from what you teach them. Right? Now, it's caught and taught. There is, parents, you have an instructional role, bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, but it's caught more than it's taught. So what your, what your kids need is for you to know their hearts and then for you to connect with them as, bro, as a broken sinner who needs Jesus so that they learn that it's okay for them to be broken and to need Jesus. This may mean when your children are little uh, that it's simply you're willing to apologize to them. There is not a harder apology in my life than when I apologize to my children over, you know, I think, I think I spoke too sharply to you there. I raised my voice and I shouldn't have. Or I don't think I listened to you well. I don't think I understood you well. So it might mean apologizing to your children, showing them that you can confess your sin easily and quickly. It means as they grow and they start dealing with the scarier stuff, peer pressure and drugs and alcohol and sexuality, that when you enter into those conversations with them, You don't do it from a place of superiority. You don't do it from the place of, well, I don't understand how on earth anyone could consider having premarital sex. It is just, it's the worst. But you go into it as a sinner, going, I get it. I understand hormones. I understand temptation. I understand peer pressure. That you own your own weakness. That you own your own fallibility as a parent. And you might think to yourself, well, doesn't that give up some of my authority as a parent? And I think when you start asking that question, you're at the heart of what Christian authority looks like. Is it in Jesus we see that authority has to always be wedded with vulnerability? Jesus, the one to whom all authority in heaven on earth has been given, made himself vulnerable in love, even to the point of death on the cross. That authority wed with vulnerability, wed with weakness, wed with with an openness, is authority that can be trusted. It's authority that looks like Jesus. And it's the same authority that we're called in the workplace, uh, if you find yourself in authority, to exercise laying down your life for those under you. Well, what do we do with this? Two quick questions to ask yourself. I think it'd be great for you to go home and take an inventory of your relationships and ask yourself, who am I in authority over in my life? Who, do I, who am I in a relationship with that I have more power than they do? And how can I lay down my life so that they can flourish? How can I give my life away for those that I'm, that I'm in authority over? And then ask yourself the other question, who's in authority over me? Who are the people that, that I'm under? And how can I lay down my life in Christ-like love and service 
so that they can flourish.